Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. Despite many advances in forensic science, people are still convicted on the testimony of people who call themselves experts. Some of the testimony and evidence is based on what lawyers and other scientists would call junk science. For one man, junk science meant 13 years in prison before the expert witness was finally debunked. Okay, on to the show. In 2000, David Kim lived with his wife Kim and their two children in Georgetown, Indiana. The couple had been married for 11 years and were active in church. Their children, 7-year-old Bradley and 5-year-old Jill, both attended Graceland Christian School. A few months previously, David had quit his 10-year job at the Indiana State Police to start his own company. In September 2000, he was working for an uncle repairing housing foundations. Coincidentally, just before David left the state police, he and two others had been accused of assaulting a teenager in 1999 after a high-speed chase. An investigation cleared David of the charges, but during a deposition, he expressed anger at the state police for not supporting him fully. On September 28, 2000, David Cam was at his church playing basketball with 10 other people. Kim and the kids were at Hazelwood Junior High School attending swim practice. David finished playing ball around 9.30 and returned home. When he arrived home, he saw Kim lying on the garage floor in a pool of blood. He found both children in the backseat of Kim's Bronco. Jill had been shot in the head like Kim, and Bradley had a gunshot wound to his chest. David thought Bradley was still alive, so grabbed him and dragged him out of the car over Kim's body. After trying unsuccessfully to resuscitate him, David called the headquarters of his old police unit and demanded everyone respond immediately. The Floyd County prosecutor, Stan Faith, arrived at the Cam household around 10 p.m. and took charge of the investigation. He made an immediate decision to hire a forensic expert, Rodney Englert, who was an analyst in Oregon. Rodney was considered an expert in blood spatter, which he has since admitted to being only partly scientific. Rodney was unable to travel to Indiana immediately, so he sent Robert Stites, his assistant. Rodney explained to Stan Faith that Robert was only there to photograph the scene and record evidence. Robert was not a scientist, had never attended a crime scene before, and had not taken any blood spatter analysis courses. The courses are required to be considered an expert. Despite Robert's inexperience, he told Stan Faith and other investigators that blood found on David Cam's shirt was high-velocity impact splatter, or HVIS. HVIS happens only during the act of firing a gun. Robert contacted his boss and described the blood pattern then said his boss agreed that it was HVIS. Robert examined the rest of the home and found evidence of HVIS bloodstains on the garage door, the siding, a mop, a jacket, and shower curtains. Robert also explained the viscosity of the blood by saying it had been changed by a high pH cleaner. Ironically, he had never been to a crime scene with fresh blood. The blood's viscosity 
was easily explained by serum separation, a natural occurrence. Fortunately, Detective Jim Niemeyer realized Robert was not experienced at all and should not be at the crime scene. He expressed concern to his chain of command, but this was met with resistance because Stan Faith wanted Robert Stites involved. David Cam's neighbor was his aunt, Tara Vree. She told investigators she had heard three loud noises around 9.15 to 9.30, which sounded like someone pounding a fist on a car. Another piece of evidence was a sweatshirt they found in the garage. The shirt was issued by the Indiana Department of Corrections and had the name Backbone on it, although Stan said it appeared to say Rack 1. A palm print was found on Kim's car but was never processed because investigators thought it wasn't clean enough. On Sunday, October 1st, 2000, David Kim was arrested on three counts of murder. He had surrendered himself to the state police at the Sellersburg Post when he found out there was a warrant for his arrest. The affidavit for David's arrest was written by Stan Faith and consisted largely of Robert Stites' expert blood spatter analysis. The affidavit also stated that David's aunt and neighbor reported hearing three gunshots between 9.15 to 9.30. On October 3rd, a hearing to establish Bond was held in Floyd County. Bond was denied in the case, although his attorney stated the evidence against his client was scant. The autopsy on Jill was particularly damning, as the coroner found evidence of sexual assault on David's five-year-old daughter. The report indicated that this seemed to be a one-time occurrence based on injuries consistent with sexual intercourse. David Cam wanted to make a statement during his hearing, but was not allowed. Therefore, as he was led out of the courtroom, he looked at all the spectators and repeated, I did not do this. His family was buried about an hour later in a joint funeral he was not allowed to attend. Approximately a thousand people attended the funeral of Kim, Bradley, and Jill. Many of those in attendance had never met the family, but joined friends and family members in mourning. David was allowed a private visitation the night before his hearing. Stan Faith had other blood spatter experts look at the shirt, and they all agreed with the finding of HVIS. Defense attorneys wanted the sweatshirt DNA tested by an independent laboratory. The lab did find DNA and created a DNA profile, but when David's lawyer asked Stan Faith to run it through the CODIS system, Stan lied about it and said nothing came up. In April 2001, several months after the murders of David Cam's family, prosecutors finally announced that they had a motive. David Cam was a philanderer. Floyd County Chief Deputy Prosecutor Susan Orth wrote the brief in response to the defense's motion to block the state from mentioning the affairs at the trial. Prosecutors said they had numerous women who claimed to have extramarital affairs with David, and most of these women were set to testify. Defense attorneys said David's past affairs had no bearing on the murder charge. David and Kim's families knew David had an affair when Kim was pregnant with Jill, but did not know of any other extramarital affairs since then. The trial, which was originally set for June 2001, was delayed. During the delay, prosecutors demanded another aunt of David Cam's, Phyllis Rhodes, to turn over an interview she had with David. Phyllis was working for Green Banner Publications, specifically a newspaper in southern Indiana called Charlestown Leader. Phyllis accused prosecutors of illegally obtaining a portion of the interview. 
One of David's other relatives later said that the interview was stolen by a nurse working for Amos Lockhart, David's grandfather, who was ill. The family also said even after the interview was stolen, it took several weeks for the prosecutors to realize Phyllis Rhodes was David's aunt. In the end, Phyllis was ordered by the judge in the case to turn over the interview. In August 2001, Danny McMahill, a 26-year-old veteran of the New Albany Police Department, was disciplined for distributing pamphlets about David Cam while on duty. The pamphlets were created by David's family and proclaimed his innocence. Danny was suspended without pay for four months. In September 2001, David Cam's attorney filed an alibi notice. His attorneys claimed he couldn't have killed his family because he was at the church with at least 10 other people playing basketball. Finally, in January 2002, the case went to trial. Security was high due to the post-9-11 date. The jury was selected from Johnson County because there had been so much pretrial publicity in Floyd County. Two of the prosecutor's key witnesses were Rodney Englert and Robert Stites. Stan Faith repeatedly called Robert Professor throughout his questioning. Robert said under oath that he was a crime scene reconstructionist and was working on a master's degree and a PhD in fluid dynamics. Robert also said he had investigated murders before for the Army and Navy Intelligence as well as the FBI. Several women were called to testify as to David's extramarital affairs. The judge said their testimony should be viewed for motive, not character. The trial fell within an election year and was one reason the case was extremely important to Stan Faith. Stan said, This case comes before any politics. There are three dead people. I'm not worried about re-election. He did attend campaign functions during the trial, but his opponent, Keith Henderson, said the man should be defined by his entire term, not one case. He agreed that the murder trial should not be politicized. As the trial progressed, it became something of a circus, with spectators lining up early every day to try to ensure a spot in the courtroom. The courtroom had a capacity of 93 people, but on some days, as many as 110 were squeezed into the courtroom. Many people thought letting the families and reporters first access was unfair. One woman told one of David's cousins that she was curious about the pictures, and that's all she wanted to see. Interest was so great, a telecast was planned if David Cam testified. A critical piece of evidence was a phone call made from the Cam household, allegedly around the time the murders happened. Defense attorneys called a Verizon executive as a witness, who testified that for years, timestamps on Verizon calls were an hour later than when they were actually made. Therefore, the call that was timestamped at 7.19 p.m. to one of David's clients was actually made at 6.19. On March 7th, David began his testimony, fighting back tears as he was questioned by his attorneys. However, his testimony was cut short and then delayed, so he could be examined by a doctor to ensure he was competent to stand trial. Stan Faith said David appeared to be on dope, although David's attorneys explained David had a migraine and had only taken his antidepressant that morning in the jail. After 29 hours of deliberation, over three days, the jury found David Cam guilty of three counts of murder. Just seven hours before they reached a verdict, they notified officials that they were deadlocked, 10 to 2. The verdict was announced just before midnight on March 17, 2002. 
David's brother Donald, stood and gestured towards the jury, exclaiming, He was at the game. Eleven witnesses saw him. What is wrong with you people? The prosecution argued David Cam had left the game, went to his house to kill his family, and then returned to the game. However, for the one game he sat out, he was speaking to an elder from the church. On Thursday, April 11, 2002, David was sentenced to 195 years in prison. During the sentencing, David told the judge he was innocent, saying, I can lay my head down in good conscience. Kim, Brad, and Jill know I am innocent. God will strengthen me and I will endure this madness until I get a fair and just judgment. Okay, I'm back to talk to you again about public goods. This episode, as you know, is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for affordable, sustainable, healthy household products, from home and personal care to premium pantry staples, all in one place. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly, and innovative products like sulfate-free shampoo, hand sanitizer, and tree-free paper products. So far, I've been able to try a lot of products in my wonderful goodie box, but I have to talk to you about the shampoo and conditioner that I received. It is so luxurious in my hair, and I know this sounds strange, but it just feels clean. So I highly recommend that if you're looking for a one-stop shop to get everything you need, you definitely should try Public Goods. So if you're like me, knowing what's in your products and where they come from is important. Small changes in the way we shop can make a big impact on personal health and the world at large. And the wonderful thing about Public Goods, which makes me feel good about using their products and getting more of their products, is that they plant one tree for every order placed and have planted over 100,000 trees since September 2019. Now, because I love you guys, we worked out an exclusive deal just for the True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners. You'll receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again, just like me, that they are giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash TCFC or use code TCFC at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash TCFC to receive $15 off your first order. And be sure to tag True Crime Fan Club and Public Goods on Twitter and Instagram to show me what you got. David's family was concerned about David's safety in prison. It is a well-known fact former law enforcement officers are ranked one step above child molesters in prison. Former police officers can face sexual assault, assault, or even stabbings with homemade shanks. David's attorney began the necessary appeals. One of them was denied by the Floyd County Courts, but it was heard by the Court of Appeals in August of 2004. The higher court reversed David's murder convictions, ruling prosecutors improperly used his past extramarital affairs to convince jurors he killed his family. Stan Faith had lost the election and Keith Henderson was a new prosecutor. A new probable cause affidavit was written, similar to the first but with two notable exceptions. One, the new lead investigator, Gary Gilbert, wrote in the affidavit that David Cam had confessed to the first lead investigator 
on the night of the murders that he had committed them. Allegedly, David said, this is what they do to you when you kill your wife and kids. However, if he had confessed in such a manner on the night of the murders, it was rather odd that it was not included in the first affidavit or in the trial. The second edition was David had allegedly confessed to a jailhouse informant. Gary Gilbert did have the sweatshirt tested, and the results led to Charles Bonet, a repeat offender who had a history of attacking women at gunpoint. Additionally, Charles's prints matched those found on Kim Cam's car. The new investigator found out his nickname was Backbone, which matched that on the sweatshirt. Incidentally, at the time of the first investigation and trial, there was a database of prisoners' nicknames for the state of Indiana, but Stan Faith claimed he did not know this existed, so he had never checked. In another strange twist, when Charles Bonet was first questioned, he immediately demanded an attorney, and the one he selected was Stan Faith. Stan had long known Charles's mother, but said he only met Charles after he had prosecuted the Cam case. Unfortunately, finding DNA for another person only led prosecutors and investigators to conclude David Cam had an accomplice. Investigators conducted over 20 hours of interviews with Charles and strongly led his implications that he only acted at David Cam's request. He changed his story numerous times, finally telling investigators he had brought the murder weapon to David Cam on September 28, 2000, wrapped in his sweatshirt. This led to a new charge of conspiracy against David Cam. The new affidavit included Charles's confession about being involved with David Cam. He was charged with three counts of murder and one of conspiracy. The new affidavit also included information about a new jailhouse informant who came forward. The new affidavit alleged that David had contacted the life insurance company the morning after the murders. On January 27, 2005, David was released from jail after his uncle posted a $20,000 bond. Although the prosecutors wanted no bond, the judge sided with the defense that the prosecution's case was weak. David was given an ankle monitor before being released to his uncle, Sam Lockhart. Keith Henderson, the prosecutor, was shocked by the decision to release David on $20,000 cash for three murders. David was given restrictions for being at his uncle's house between 9 p.m. and 6 a.m. and was limited to Floyd and Clark counties except for traveling to Warwick County to see his attorneys. David wept when he was finally granted bail. Keith later filed a motion for Judge Aylesworth to step down. Keith said the judge had an appearance of a bias because of a long and personal relationship with one of the defense attorneys. The judge refused to step down, and David's attorney said the prosecutors only asked for the judge to step down because they were angry about David being released on bond. During the second trial, one of the investigators from the original case testified that David Cam threatened him and his colleagues shortly before he was arrested. The investigators had asked David to come to the hospital for a sample for a sexual assault analysis, and David realized then that he was a suspect. While in the waiting area, David found out there was blood spatter evidence, and he told his former colleagues he would kill them if they let the expert put him in jail. David's uncle testified he thought David made the comment to ease the tension of the moment, but one investigator allegedly took it so seriously, he moved his family out of the area during the investigation. The jury in the second trial 
heard the medical examiner talk about the three bruises and a small tear she found to Jill's genital area during the autopsy. VME said the injuries had to have occurred within 24 hours of the little girl's death, but also said they could have been caused by a fall on something. The former chief medical examiner for Kentucky, however, testified that the injuries did not seem consistent with sexual abuse. David Cam's new attorney grilled Robert Stites, the alleged blood spatter expert, on cross-examination. She questioned him about his statement in the first trial regarding his admission into a doctorate program in fluid dynamics. Robert admitted he had not been enrolled in the program and, at the time of the first trial, had not even taken any classes on the subject. He also admitted he had not even taken the most basic blood stain splatter analysis course and had only read one small book. Robert also admitted he testified in the first trial that he had testified in three other cases as a blood spatter expert, but the CAM case was actually the first one he testified in that capacity. Robert Stites said the eight drops of blood he found on David Cam's shirt were the smallest in number he had ever seen as blood spatter. David's attorneys also cross-examined one of the investigators to show the prosecutor and his team made a rush to judgment that David Cam had committed the murders and did not focus on any other possible leads, including the sweatshirt and bare footprint in the garage that was lost because it had not been preserved or stored properly. The investigator admitted he said it was not about burglary within five minutes of arriving on scene because he was told the house did not look burglarized. The defense raked over another blood spatter witness who claimed David Cam was within four feet of Jill when she was shot. However, Jill was in the back seat of the Bronco and there was blood spatter from her on the back of the seat in front of her. The attorney asked how that was possible. The expert said, the blood must have gone in an arc over the shoulder of the shooter and down onto the back seat. The attorney asked, you're saying for a splatter to have gotten to the seat back, it would have gone up and over Mr. Cam. The expert said yes. Another witness from the first trial, a state DNA analyst, claimed she felt pressure to lie under oath in the first trial. She claimed Stan Faith shouted and cursed at her and threatened her with obstruction of justice if she did not testify the way he wanted. The analyst said Stan had cornered her during a break at the first trial and wanted her to say the DNA on the sweatshirt belonged to David Cam. However, despite these weak witnesses, including one who admitted to lying under oath in the first trial, David Cam was once again found guilty. Charles Bonet was tried at the same time as David, but in Floyd County. Charles Bonet was a convicted felon who had only been out of prison three months when the Cams were murdered. He had been convicted for several robberies in 1988, where he stole women's shoes. He admitted to the Bloomington police he was obsessed with women's feet and legs. The way Kim Cam was attacked as she got out of her car and then pulled to the ground was similar to Charles M.O. in 1988. Kim's pants and shoes were removed, and the shoes placed on top of her bronco. After Charles Bonet's arrest, he was given a polygraph exam by an independent tester. When he finished the first test, the tester told investigators Charles had failed. The investigators were shocked and asked him to be tested again. During the second exam, the tester asked more specialized questions about the type of weapon used. Investigators were aware it was a 380 semi-automatic handgun, 
but Charles could not have known that if he were not involved. When the investigator mentioned this type of weapon, Charles responded strongly. Out of seven weapons mentioned, this was the only one he reacted to. Charles's former girlfriend testified in his trial, stating that the night of the murder, she was asleep at his mother's house, and he woke her up a little after midnight, showing her a gun wrapped in a t-shirt. She said the next morning, while they watched the news, that his mother had asked him point-blank if he had anything to do with the murders, and he answered yes. However, this was ruled hearsay and stricken from the record. Charles's case was much shorter than David's and went to trial after two weeks. After the jury deliberated for one and a half days, they found Charles Bonet guilty of three counts of murder and one count of conspiracy, although David Camp's conspiracy charge was thrown out by the judge, who stated the prosecutors did not have sufficient evidence to point to the conspiracy. On February 23, 2006, Charles Bonet was sentenced to 225 years. He acted oddly in court telling Judge Cody he was innocent, but then insisting on the maximum sentence of 275 years. He explained that was because Cody did not appear soft during an election year, and he wanted closure for Kim Cam's family. He then told Keith Henderson that he would have his conviction overturned on appeal, saying, You and I will dance again. When we dance again, you'll follow my lead. On March 3, 2006, David Cam was once again found guilty of three counts of murder. His second jury deliberated for 44 hours over four days to reach the verdict. David's family was distressed at the verdict, even as Kim's family cheered, but David's attorney calmed them down and admonished them not to make it worse. In June 2009, the Indiana Supreme Court again overturned David's conviction and ordered a new trial. The conviction was overturned this time because the court argued the judge should not have allowed the speculation about sexual abuse to Jill. This was prejudicial against David. After the second conviction, Prosecutor Keith Henderson signed a book deal about the case. This led to more legal wranglings as David's team argued to have Keith removed from the case, citing a conflict of interest. After two years, Keith was removed and a special prosecutor was named. After a third contentious trial, David Cam was found not guilty and immediately released from prison. Many civil suits came out of David Cam's case. Suits against the state of Indiana, Stan Faith, Keith Henderson, the blood spatter experts, David Cam himself brought by Kim Cam's parents, and even the blood spatter experts sued other blood spatter experts. It was the costliest trial in Floyd County, Indiana history and sparked new legislation about the cost of retrials. In the end, David Cam settled for $450,000 for lost earnings and the mental anguish he was put through. This payout was only from Floyd County, and his $30 million lawsuit against the state of Indiana is still ongoing. This case has underscored the controversy around blood spatter analysis and whether it is a reliable form of evidence or not. Many scientists view blood spatter as junk science, in 2009, the National Academy of Sciences found serious problems with blood spatter analysis, stating, the uncertainties associated with bloodstain pattern analysis are enormous. The authors of the study said, in general, the opinions of bloodstain pattern analysts are more subjective than scientific. Beyond the science, however, 
the murders of Kim, Bradley, and Jill Cam changed the lives of their family forever. Kim's family still believes that David committed the murders, and David's family no longer has faith in the justice system. David lost his wife and two children and was not allowed to attend their funeral. The summer before the murders, David had been an assistant coach for Brad and Jill's Little League teams. The family attended church at the Georgetown Community Church, which David's grandfather built. The church has closed its doors now as the community turned its back on the Cam family. Kim's family speculates that she would be a top executive by now. Her father said Kim was a talker more than a listener and a problem solver. Her unforgettable laugh haunts her mother, who hears it in certain commercials. At the age of seven, Bradley could recite all the books of the Bible and loved to dress up as his favorite characters. Jill was a blonde-haired tomboy, always on the move. David was hired by the nonprofit organization Investigating Innocence after he was acquitted in his third trial. It's not clear if he is still working with them as a case coordinator. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the David Cam case. Feel free to share those with me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Nico at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. What Was That Like might just be the most intriguing podcast you'll ever hear. Each episode is a conversation with a regular person who has been through an extremely unusual situation, like Jamie, who discovered a stranger in her bedroom, or Alyssa, whose ex-boyfriend came to her work and set himself on fire, or Ramon, whose wife hired a hitman to kill him, or Ross, who at age eight survived being shot in the head by his father. Real people telling their story firsthand. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com.